Now, as we know, Kansas is once more in the news because of evolution. So even though I've covered some of these aspects of this topic before in a pro-life talk, it bears repeating. Today we'll deal with some of the religious issues. Over time, we'll have a series of sermons on this particular topic. It's an important topic. The American Museum of Natural History in New York City is one of the greatest science museums in the world. The striking sight greets you as you approach the Hall of Human Biology and Evolution. There at the entrance of that hall, centered perfectly in the middle of this pitch black facade, is a display with three brightly lit items that just seem to jump out from that pitch black background. There's a large dead branch. It's been stripped down to the bare wood. Perched on that branch is the skeleton of a female gorilla who's apparently looking down and placing something in the upstretched hands of a human female skeleton. Immediately above the display, in huge white letters that are carved into the black granite, huge white letters, it says, Human Biology and Evolution. Now this display, at the entrance of an evolutionary exhibit hall in one of the world's greatest science museums, makes it perfectly clear to a thoughtful observer that we're not really dealing with a scientific issue at all. We're dealing with religion. How does that work, Father? Because that display is actually an icon. We just walked into the Temple of Darwin and looked at the first icon. To understand the significance of that display, we need to know a little bit about icons. So what's an icon? An icon, like Our Lady of Perpetual Help back there, is a work of religious art. It's a visual sermon, a sermon written without words. It's the Word of God put into a visible form, a work of art that's meant to intuitively convey a theological message. The whole purpose of a holy icon is to reveal something about inexpressible divine truths by using something visible, some kind of visible symbolic imagery, using fixed symbols and mystical colors. The idea is if this icon is viewed regularly, the particular spiritual truths which are being expressed in that image will fill the soul of the viewer, okay? It's like as if we listen to a symphony over and over again, the musical themes will fill our soul. So also by viewing an icon over and over again, the theological truths are supposed to fill our soul. So holy icon is a spiritual work of art. It's a sermon written without words, and it's meant to convey a theological message. And the more we view it, the more times we gaze upon it, the more these spiritual themes are meant to soak into our souls. They become part of the very fiber of our being. That's an icon. Now, we don't want to forget that the enemy also understands this principle. And he makes icons. And his unholy icons have a message behind them also. Unholy icons are also a sermon without words. What sort of things do his unholy icons portray? Well, they don't express truth. They express lies. And the more we view them, 
more of these lies will soak into our souls and become part of the very fiber of our being. So just as we're trying to fill souls with truth, they're trying to fill souls for lies. The battleground is within the soul, and it's for souls. The battle is for immortal souls. Now, to see how this works, let's take a quick look at two simple examples of unholy icons for return to this icon in the American Museum of Natural History. First example, it's the symbol that Gorbachev uses for his global environmental organization. Anyone know what that is? The green cross. Now remember that holy icons use fixed symbols and mystical colors in order to convey a message. What's the message in this unholy icon? Well, the symbol's a cross. What's that symbolic of? Salvation, redemption. The color's green. What's that symbolize? Mother Earth, environmentalism, so forth. So when we see a green cross, what's the iconic message? What's the message? That we're saved by Mother Earth? There's no God, or maybe we're standing on it? It's artistic blasphemy. It's not accidental. It's well done. Second example. Symbol we've probably all seen on the back of vehicles. It's a fish with two legs and one word inside the fish. What's the word inside the fish with two legs? It's Darwin. Darwin, and you get this fish with the two legs sticking up. So what's the message of this unholy icon? Well, what's the symbol? The fish. What does this fish stand for? Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Greek word for fish, ekthos, it's made up from the first uh, letters from a Greek sentence, uh, Jesus Christ, Son of God, the Savior. And so they take that, and it, it spells fish in Greek, ichthus. So the symbol of the fish stands for Jesus Christ. As we know, you see, you see that. That goes out in catacomb times. You see that. The symbol of fish stands for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. It's a symbol of our Lord and Savior, of our God. When we look at a symbol with a Darwin fish with legs, What's the message? Well, the legs are symbolic of an evolutionary progress past the fish stage. Something that's more advanced, more superior to a fish. So we already see something implicit in that because we know what the symbol is and why they're putting it on their cars because the Christians have the fish on it. So they're more advanced. Okay. And what's the word stand for? The substitution of Darwin. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's blasphemy. It's artistic blasphemy. It's well done. And it's not accidental. That little design isn't a product of random chaotic forces over millennia. They thought about it before they made it. Okay, now with all that in mind, let's go back to the American Museum of Natural History. Remember, we've got this pitch black ball, and in the middle of it, smack dab in the middle, is a display with three brightly lit items. So you've got this bright white skeleton of a female gorilla crouched in a dead branch that's about four feet off the ground. This mother gorilla is placing something into the upstretched palm of a bright white skeleton of a human female. And above this skeleton, these skeletons, there's a beautiful surface of polished black granite with the words human biology and evolution carved into it in huge white letters. What's the message here? What does this display mean? Well, here's what the museum says it means, quote, this display symbolizes the continuity of our species with the rest of the living world, close quote. Is that what we're dealing with? 
a couple of skeletons that symbolize the continuity of our species with the rest of the living world. That might sound right. You don't think about it. Is that true? Let's take a closer look at the display. Instead of light, we have darkness. Instead of God the Father, we have the Mother Gorilla. Instead of the Tree of Life, we have a dead branch. Instead of the first man receiving the gift of life from God, we have the first woman receiving the gift of life from a gorilla. Instead of the state of grace, we have the state of nature. Instead of a living God and a living man, we've got dead skeletons. And over it all, carved on stone tablets, we have the words, human evolution is carved in stone. Evolution, a light in the darkness, carved in stone. Does anyone here really think this is accidental? Didn't they tell us this is just a symbolic representation of the continuity of our species with the rest of the living world? Isn't that what they told us? If that's true, if that's true, then how did this display wind up being such an obviously deliberate and blasphemous mockery of the book of Genesis? Was that just an accident? Isn't this supposed to be science and not religion? Or are we supposed to believe this display is some sort of accidental arrangement resulting from random chaotic forces assembled over millennia? Is that what we're supposed to believe? Or maybe was this display purposely designed in order to mock religion? When Michelangelo paints the Sistine Chapel, he's making iconic depictions of scriptural truths, huh? including that beautiful rendition on the ceiling of the creation of man with outstretched hand of Adam receiving the gift of life from God. We're all familiar with that. And here, in one of the premier science museums in the world, in the very entrance to the Hall of Human Evolution, what are we greeted with? With an unholy icon that symbolically, but explicitly and unmistakably, mocks that very symbol, mocks sacred scripture. Why do you suppose they're mocking the word of God in one of the greatest science museums in the world? Because what we're dealing with here is not science at all. It's a false materialistic religion slash philosophy masquerading as science. And a display like this, a display which is pure religious symbolism, an icon from hell, proves that the other side understands exactly what they're doing, and oftentimes we don't. And guess what? They've understood the true implications of evolution theory from the very beginning. As Karl Marx said, quote, Darwin's book is very important and serves me as a basis in natural science for the class struggle in history, close quote, and quote. This is the book which contains the basis in natural history for our worldview, close quote, Karl Marx. In fact, Marx was so impressed by Darwin's work that he wanted to dedicate parts of Das Kapital, his work on capitalism, to Darwin. 
anyone care for the errors of Russia. Darwin wrote back to Marx to refuse the honor because, among other things, he did not believe that direct attacks on religion advanced his cause. What was Darwin saying to Marx? He wanted to advance the cause of an agnostic or atheistic method of thinking which attacked Christianity, but he thought that direct attacks on religion weren't the best way to do so. See, the enemies of God have understood the true implications of the theory right from the moment of its founding. They've been clever about not necessarily tipping their cards too publicly. As Darwin's great-great-grandson has recently written, quote, Darwin's theory of evolution had demolished the biblical story of creation. And if the very first chapter of the good book was nonsensical and untrue, why would the rest be more credible or useful? Close quote. That is an excellent question. Darwin's theory of evolution had demolished the biblical story of creation, and if the very first chapter of the good book was nonsensical and true, why would the rest be credible or useful? Well, amen. We can't argue with that. They knew what they were doing from the very beginning, and they still do. Evolution is not science. It's a false religious worldview masquerading as science, and they know it, and all too often we don't. The famous Oxford evolutionist and best-selling author, Richard Dawkins, makes the same point. Quote, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually sad fulfilled atheist, close quote. So here's a famous scientist explaining the peril of evolution. It's, it makes it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. But does that sound like science? Does that sound like religion? A 1991 article in the journal Nature, which along with the journal Science, is the most respected refereed scientific journal in the world, makes the same point in yet another way. Quote, Whatever the God implied by evolutionary theory in the data of natural history may be like, he is not a loving God who cares about his productions. He's careless, wasteful, indifferent, almost diabolical. He is certainly not the sort of God to whom anyone be, would be inclined to play. Close quote. Evolution is not science. It's a false religious worldview masquerading as science. And they know it. All too often we don't. In an article entitled The Meaning of Evolution, the author, an atheist, goes right to the heart of the matter when he writes, quote, Evolution destroys utterly and finally the very reasons Jesus' earthly life was supposedly made necessary. Destroy Adam and Eve and the original sin, and in the rubble you will find the sorry remains of the Son of God. Take away the meaning of his death. If Jesus was not the Redeemer who died for our sins, and this is what evolution means, then Christianity is nothing. Close quote. He's absolutely right. This atheist has a far more profound understanding of the absolutely foundational significance of original sin for our theology than a lot of us. The people who design the display for the American Museum of Natural History have a far greater appreciation for our theology a lot of us. Everything we do here has something to do with Adam and original sin. Everything. Everything. That's why the Catholic Church is here. That's why Christ established it. To deal with this problem that we inherited from Adam. 
Let's close for today. We started by considering an icon from the culture of death, a mockery of one of the paintings found on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Let's close with a meditation on another icon, that incredible scene painted by Michelangelo above the altar in the same chapel. It's the scene of the Last Judgment. We began with the beginning, let's end with the end. That beautiful icon, there's a beautiful blue sky that appears almost real. You can just stare at it. You can't believe you're not really looking at sky. And in the center, our Lord is sitting there in judgment. Our Lady's at his right, and around him are the apostles. And there's a swirl of motion around. Down below, the angels are pulling the dead up out of their graves. And the blessed are being taken up by the angels into heaven, and the cursed are being dragged down by the demons down into hell. It's a magnificent icon of Judgment Day, the second coming, the resurrection of the dead, the last day, the end of the world. And we'll be there. What about us? There will be dust in the tombs. What will become of us? If somehow we could stand back and watch on that day, what will we see? Will Judgment Day be anything like that image? At the crack of doom, when that trumpet blows, will we be snatched up out of the dusty grave and brought by the angels to the valley of Jehoshaphat on the twinkling of eye to be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ? Will we? Or perhaps... We see the angels taking the dust from each grave and mixing it, arranging it, so it ever so gradually forms an organic soup. Then self-replicating molecules of RNA and DNA. Then over the eons, a primitive cell, a segmented worm that puts on scales and becomes a fish. A fish that grows legs, takes off its scales, and becomes an amphibian. An amphibian that puts its scales back on and becomes a reptile. A reptile that takes its scales back off and becomes a mammal changing from a little rat-like mammal, slowly into a primate, then an ape, then an ape, and then pop, we appear. Something like a horrible claymation movie with an accompanying soundtrack, weird screaks and groans and grunts, which of course would take place over a fairly long day. The longest day, a 3.5 billion year long day with our Lord hovering there in the air. Remember, after all, even though people used to think that a day in the Bible meant a day, modern scripture scholars assure us that that's only a pre-scientific superstition. Is that what we'd see? Are we going to be yanked out of the ground when our Lord comes, or is he going to sit there for three and a half billion years waiting for us to evolve back out of the ground? Which is it? If someone can believe that God is going to yank us all out of the ground all of a sudden at the end of time, then why in the name of all that's good and holy can they not believe that he did the same thing with our father Adam at the beginning of time? Which is it? We already know what happened with Adam. In 1859, Darwin published The Origin of Species, and some years later saw that with the descent of man. Folks went asleep. God doesn't abandon his church, just in case someone might not understand the clear and unbroken teaching of Genesis, just in case anyone might have had some doubts. Pope Leo XIII answered them when he responded clearly and decisively in February of 1880 with his encyclical Arcana. Paragraph 5, quote, The true origin of marriage, venerable brothers, is well known to all. The revilers of the Christian faith refuse to acknowledge 
the never-interrupted doctrine of the Church on this subject, and have long striven to destroy the testimony of all nations and all times, they have nevertheless failed not only to quench the powerful light of truth, but even to lessen it. We record what is known to all and cannot be doubted by any. I'll repeat that. We record what is known to all and cannot be doubted by any, that God, on the sixth day of creation, having made man from the slime of the earth and having breathed into his face the breath of life, gave him a companion whom he miraculously took from the side of Adam when he was locked in sleep. God thus, in his most far-reaching foresight, decreed that this husband and wife should be the natural beginning of the human race, from whom it might be propagated and preserved by an unfailing fruitfulness through all futurity of time. Close quote. Hopefully on the 13th. Just in case anyone missed that, we'll repeat the important parts. The true origin of marriage, venerable brothers, is well known to all. We record what is known to all, and cannot be doubted by any, that God, on the sixth day of creation, having made man from the slime of the earth, and having breathed into his face the breath of life, gave him a companion, whom he miraculously took from the side of Adam when he was locked in sleep. God thus, in his most, most far-reaching foresight, decreed that this husband and wife should be the natural beginning of the human race, from whom it might be propagated and preserved by an unfailing fruitfulness throughout all fertility of time, period, close the book. It's theology, not science. The enemies of God have understood that right from the beginning. Have we? We better wake up and smell the sulfur. Let's close with a prayer. Heavenly Father, in your inerrant word, we see that after Adam and Eve were tempted by the devil to call into question your very first words to them, the fall of man occurred and all hell broke loose. And as we survey the rising bloody tides of this culture of death, we're reminded that once again all hell is broken loose because our society too is called into question your very first words to us. We repent and we beg you to give us the grace to resist the wickedness and snares of the ancient serpent and to be faithful to your holy word in the face of the mockery and scorn of your enemies. Amen.